everyone, and welcome to the Uncorked Corner podcast, where we cover the full spread of food and beverage industry topics. My name is Bianca, PR and marketing professional by day and food and wine connoisseur by night. And my name is Nick, an accountant with a passion for barbecue, beer, and whiskey. Today, we welcome Bob Manley from Hermit Woods Winery in Meredith, New Hampshire. Hermit Woods specializes in making classic wine styles with unconventional local fruits. In this episode, Bob walks us through the history of Hermit Woods from the days of home brewing to the opening and expansion of their Meredith, New Hampshire location. We discuss the process of creating wines from fresh local fruits, how the winery is supporting other craft companies in New Hampshire, and what's to come at the winery in the near future. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to us. With that said, let's welcome Bob to the show. Welcome, Bob, to the podcast. We are so excited to have you on after visiting recently, and we would love to get started um, before we get into the questions. If you could just introduce yourself and tell everybody how you got into this business. Sure. Uh, thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm Bob Manley. I'm one of the co-founders of Hermit Woods Winery. Uh, my business was founded by three partners, and to give you a little backstory, uh, I actually had to go back a number of years. I spent 11 years living in California, and that's really where I got the wine bug. I, uh, I discovered wine out there. Not hard. There's about 4,000 wineries in California, and uh, I, I went out there to go to school, and being young and ambitious, I made it a point to visit just about all of them, and uh, I didn't actually get to do that, but I visited a lot of wineries and learned a lot about wine, and and really wine became very much a hobby for me. When I moved back east to New Hampshire, I was fortunate to meet my friends and now business partner, Ken and Chuck, who also had an early interest in wine. And, uh, and the three of us started spending a lot of time together. And one of our favorite pastimes was to, to uh, dabble in the, the making of wine. Um, it really started with beer, actually. I, I started making beer and discovered that I really wasn't very good at it. And a friend of mine introduced me to Ken, who told me that uh, Ken was a very good beer maker. And if I wanted to learn how to make beer, I should really get to know Ken. So I went and spent some time with Ken. And I figured out pretty early on that, that I, uh, I either spent more time with Ken and learned how to make better beer or just spend more time with Ken and drink his. And, uh, and that's really how we became friends. Uh, anyway, so we, we uh, for about six years, we were really digging in pretty hard into winemaking as a hobby. Uh, we started out working with wine kits, uh, quickly transitioned to ordering grapes off of the docks in Boston, which, uh, which was a, an interesting experience to say the least. And then we, uh, we made connections with better grape dealers and, and started getting even better grapes from around the world. And and making small batches of a, of a variety of uh, vinifera type wines. We also started exploring with wines uh, made from fruits that were growing in our own yards. And, and Ken kept beehives on his property, so he explored making meads. And uh, this little hobby of ours after about six years started to get really out of hand. Uh, we were actually making more wine than I think we were really legally allowed to make. <laughs> so. Um, around 2010, the three of us decided to 
give a run at a commercial version of our of our hobby and uh, we decided to open a winery and convert my house into a winery uh, we actually converted my master bedroom into a wine tasting room I had to uh, get my wife on board so I told her if she if she went along with this crazy idea of ours I'd fill her whole basement up with wine which we did do and uh we turned the, the finished cellar into a wine making area. And uh, in June of 2011, we opened up to the public for the very first time and grew our business out of my house for about three years, sort of give us a proof of concept. And that gave us the, uh, uh, the sense that we really were onto something special here. And uh, also the, the, uh, the ability to consider buying a, a building in Meredith and grow our business together. And uh, so we, we actually bought a building in downtown Meredith in uh, 2013 and converted that building into our, what is now our present day winery and, uh, and now Hermit Woods Winery and Deli. So. Nice, and it's an awesome area, especially it's Meredith, such a walkable town. I spend a lot of time up there in that area. My girlfriend has a house in Guilford so we always drive over to Meredith and get to explore. And I first heard about you actually up the street at Twin Barns where she was ordered one of your ciders. Um, she's not a big beer drinker. So I saw the can, I saw Meredith. Wow, is just you're on that street that we don't really go down a ton. But then we were able to drive by and see it. And you have a beautiful location and you're right there in the downtown area. Um, definitely, definitely a cool spot to be. Thank you. Yeah, we're really happy with our location. We're right on Main Street. We're right next to the post office, actually, so we're not hard to find. And uh, and, uh, and the business is growing. We we uh, when we first moved in, we were we just continued as a winery, but uh, we're now open seven days a week. And three day, three years ago, we converted part of our building into a deli. So now we're serving food, and we're also serving a local craft beer, uh, including Twin Barns. Uh, beers as well, which is really nice. Give a give a chance to to share some of the other small crafters in our area that are producing some fine products, and uh, so now you can enjoy our wine or beer with with a nice menu of uh, of food items. And we're now in the process of converting our third floor into what we're calling a listening room. Uh, we're really excited about the possibility uh, in the near future of bringing in music. Uh, ideally, we're trying to to uh, invite talent from around the country, possibly from around the world to come and play at Hermit Woods. We're building a 65 seat, very intimate and, uh, and unique space where, uh, where you can hear some really fantastic music in the near future. We're, we're uh, outfitting the, the space with a, with a high-end sound system, a concert grand piano and, uh, and all of the necessary components to really entice really talented musicians to come play with us. Yeah, it's very exciting and it, it looks awesome. We got the chance to take a peek at it when we were there. Uh, of course, it's not done yet, but I am looking forward to seeing how it comes together. Of course, uh, you kind of have to see the big picture there, but I mean, wine and music and cider and everything else, great food from the deli. I think you really have the full package. So that's going to be definitely a hot spot for people in the area. Yes, I certainly hope so. Uh, we're we're uh, we're really excited about it, and obviously that space will also be available for other uses. We'll be able to uh, rent it out if people want to hold events or business meetings there, 
And we're also going to conduct uh, winery events there as well. So we can offer different types of services that we're not able to offer right now. When I was there, I had the opportunity to try a whole bunch of different wines. And there was one that you had that was a pretty big award winner. Um, it was pretty well known across, I would say, really the US. What was that one wine? Can you tell us about it? And you have some other award winners as well. So if you want to give us a little insight into what those are. Sure. Our most famous wine is by far our Petite Blue and Petite Blue Reserve. And Petite Blue is is a wine crafted in the style of a French Burgundy, which would be a Pinot Noir. But of course, Pinot Noir doesn't grow here in New Hampshire. So we make it from wild Maine low bush blueberries. Um, but it drinks very stylistically like a Pinot. It's, it's almost bone dry. And the Petite Blue is aged in stainless steel. So it comes off a little fruitier, a little lighter, more refreshing. And the Petit Blue Reserve is a little bit more austere. It, it's uh, aged in French oak for several months. Uh, it makes it a little drier, a little more food friendly, and uh, and uh, and drinks drinks really nicely with a with a wide variety of, of uh, different types of food. So um, these wines, or the, both the Petit Blue and the people Petit Blue Reserve, uh, began their fame when about five years ago the editor of Food and Wine magazine asked if he could share it with. Kathy Lee and Hoda on the Today Show. And of course we said yes. And uh, so that was exciting. We got, we got our wine on the Today Show and uh, that, that was the beginning of that wine's rise to its uh, ultimate fame today. Um, uh, about two years later, Food and Wine called that wine out as the best craft beverage in New Hampshire. And last year, Oprah Magazine uh, wrote an article in her June issue suggesting that the one thing that you should not miss if you visit New Hampshire last summer was Hermit Woods Winery and their Petite Blue Reserve. So, so I think by far our Petite Blue is our most, most famous wine and is also our, one of our best sellers. Um, another wine that's very popular with, with a lot of our guests is our Winnipesaukee Rosé. And I think the name helps a lot. Uh, lake Winnipesaukee is a famous lake in our area that that people from all over the region and probably all over the country recognize if they've traveled in New Hampshire. And we named it that because it was also a special, uh, we created it for a special purpose. It, it helps us raise money to help protect our watershed. It's important to us because we use the water in this watershed to make our wine. And we also, uh, that, that water is what attracts people to our area. A lot of people come here for the lakes. So we want to make sure the lakes are protected. And so 10% of our Winnipesaukee Rosé goes, uh, goes to the Winnipesaukee Association, which is the protector of the, the watershed here in the area. It's a, it's a classic styled rosé, drinks very much like a semi-dry rosé you might drink in Provence, only again made from local fruits, made from apples from Apple Hill Farm in Concord and from... Uh, from cranberries from Cape Cod. And if you haven't noticed the trend here, um, Hermit Woods doesn't make wine from grapes. Uh, and a lot of people hear that and they're like, huh, well, is that really wine? And, and I'm here to tell you it is. Uh, we, we, uh, uh, we're doing something very different at Hermit Woods, different than most, than most wineries in the Northeast that are making wine from fruit other than grapes. If you've had wine made from fruit other than grapes, you probably remember it as being quite sweet, often young, fruity, unidimensional, and, uh, and not what you would think of when you think of drinking a glass of wine. And 
Uh, we're trying to change that. We're trying to craft wines that are very much like those classic wines that you might get from the wine regions of the world that stylistically have complexity and uh, great mouthfeel and uh, nice balance, uh, are served well with food, are, are able to be laid down in your cellar for five or 10 years and continue to improve as they, as they age. So many of our wines drink like classic reds, classic whites. And if I didn't tell you that grapes weren't in those bottles, you probably wouldn't know. So that leads me to my next question. It's a really cool idea styling all these various fruit wines after sort of classical styles. Um, we know from talking to different people in the winemaking industry that the wines basically mainly from the grapes have real seasonality to them where every year they sort of change flavors and change profiles depending on water content and soil and everything. So do you notice that same variability when it comes to the blueberries and the cranberries and different things in our local region? Um, and if so, how do you kind of keep that consistency, especially with your multi-year running wines? Absolutely. Uh, Mother Nature delivers us different fruit every year in the same way Mother Nature delivers different grapes to grape growers every year. Um, we can't control that. We can only do our best to sort of uh, coax it along or coax Mother Nature along to get to try and achieve the best fruit possible. But some years are drier than others. Some years are wetter than others. Uh, some years have more humidity, less humidity. There's a lot of variables we don't have control over. So the fruit's different every year. And if you, if you drink classic grape wines, uh, you are probably aware that there are vintages, then some vintages are considered better than others. And that's a variable that uh, grape wine makers can't control. And so some years are better than others. And we find the same thing. There are some years that our blueberries, uh, this year, for example, we achieved 16 bricks on our blueberries, which is unheard of. Uh, blueberries average about 12 bricks, which is uh, quite a bit less. So. Um, so it, we're getting different fruit every year. And just like with grape wines, we're not trying to make the exact same wine every year. We're trying to make the best possible wine each year that we can make with the fruit we are given. And, uh, and if you were to taste the wines side by side year over year, you would find differences. Stylistically, they're going to be the same. We're trying to, to craft them in the same style. So the level of sweetness, the level of dryness, the mouth feel, the complexity, uh, we're going to get close on all of those variabilities. But the, the end flavor is going to vary from year to year. And we definitely have some years that are better than others, and uh, just like in the grape world. You're working on some new wines all the time, right? You're always experimenting. And it was very cool to be able to visit and see the different concoctions that are happening uh, in your downstairs in your cellar. But one of the questions that I have, which I'm very curious about is you, in addition to wine, you do also offer meads. Um, and for our listeners who are not familiar with that, we have never touched on the subject before. Can you kind of give us some insight as to what makes those different? Sure. A mead actually is the wine. Um, it, honey wine and mead is really interchangeable. You could use either term. Uh, mead is a wine made from honey. And it is actually the, known as the oldest fermented beverage uh, in the world. There's evidence of people making meads uh, something like 9,000 years ago in China, archeological evidence. So it's the oldest fermented beverage. 
Um, and meads come in as many different uh, styles and flavors as do wines. Um, meads, uh, meads can be blended with other fruits or other ingredients, and you can make as, as many different styles as, uh, as you would find a grape wine. And so we've been making mead since we, since we really began because Ken had honey and, uh, and he wanted to experiment with, with the different types of flavors that we could create. We have about 12 different styles of meads um, from a show mead, which is considered a honey wine that's made 100% from honey. There's no other additional uh, ingredients added other than uh, water, which you have to add to honey in order to make mead. Um, water thins the honey and reduces the sugar content because mead is actually, honey is too sweet to make a wine from. Um, and then you introduce yeast and you, you get a wine. Um, and then we have some meads that are blends. We have a blend called Red Scare that's, uh, that's honey, blueberries, blackberries, and raspberries. And if you were to drink it, you would, uh, you'd think you were drinking a burgundy, not a, not a mead. Um, you can, if you know there's honey in it, you can get those honey notes, but uh, drinks very much like a dry red. Mead is one of the fastest growing segments, segments of the alcohol industry right now, mead and cider. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, we also make cider. So uh, it's, uh, it's really, really fun to have all that variety of products that we have to offer. Yeah, and I imagine it could also really allow you to adapt to whatever, like you're saying, whatever nature gives you. If you have particularly good apples and different fruits, you can mix them together and make some really cool new things. Like I said, uh, one of the ciders that I had was a cranberry cider. Yes. So it was a really cool, you know, different type of cider outside of your normal apple that you don't normally find anywhere, but just as delicious. Yes, we actually have a luxury that a lot of grape farmers, farmers probably wish they had. Um, we, we work with farmers all over New England and the weather varies dramatically between Vermont, Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire. And so when say an, an apple crop doesn't do so well in the Southern part of New England, maybe they're doing better in the Northern part. So we can work with the farmers that are having the most success and get the best quality fruit uh, of, of those tip, uh, different varieties uh, with each harvest. So that's a, a really big advantage for us. And, and you're right, there is a really wide variety of, of fruits. Uh, some fruits that people wouldn't even expect might be considered to use to make wine. One of, the, one of those is a rose hip. Uh, we harvest rose hips off the seacoast of New Hampshire. We hand, hand pick them. And rose hips are making a really excellent uh, blend for one of our, our, our wines, Lake House White. Um, we don't make a, a rosehip wine all by itself, but it's a blender. It's, it's a component of a wine. And we also use rhubarb and autumn berries and uh, apples, peaches, pears, blackberries. There's probably about 25 different fruits that, uh, that go into the making of the wide variety of wines that we produce. I think of Ken, really, uh, you mentioned uh, winemaker. I'm, I'm really technically not the winemaker. My partner, Ken, is the winemaker. And... Uh, He's a scientist by trade. He, he, uh, he spent 25 years as a geologist. He has his doctorate in geology and uh, uh, only, only uh, in the last 15 years has he started getting into to winemaking and, and his science background uh, causes him to, he just can't help himself. He just digs in every year trying to figure out the, the next great flavor, the next great blend, the next balance, the next new flour that he can put in our in, in a mead or or new ingredient that he can experiment with. So 
So every year he's, he's tweaking everything he's doing, trying to both improve the products we already have, as well as come up with new ideas for, for different products that we might offer in the future. And another, you were mentioning uh, fruits that you wouldn't expect to see a wine out of. That was one that I was surprised when Bianca brought me this bottle is the heirloom crab apple. As I mentioned, I'm drinking right now. Uh, crab apples are those little fruits that you always see laying on golf courses and grounds that when you're growing up, everyone told you to stay away from. Don't eat those. Those aren't edible. But when I saw it, you know, in your wine and I tried it, it's delicious. You know, it's dry, it's tart. It's just a, almost exactly what you would expect from it. it. Looks like this one's a mix between crab apple and blueberry, 95% crab apple, 5% blueberry for our listeners, if you're curious. Um, but yeah, it's definitely in something that you wouldn't expect, but it's super tasty. Well, let me tell you a little background about that crab apple. Back in the 1800s, the farmers discovered this, this crab apple. It's called a Dolgo crab apple, and they discovered it in Kazakhstan in Europe. And they discovered it had a really wonderful flavor and also an ability to achieve a very high sugar content. Crab apples can get as high as 18 bricks, which is really pretty rare for this part of the world, for this growing season. And so they imported them to the US to add to the cider they were making back in the 1800s as a, as a flavor ingredient. And uh, they were very popular back then. But as you know, uh, as, as we got into the 19th century, ciders became less popular, beers became more popular. And when prohibition happened, uh, cider almost disappeared as a product on the American shelf. And it took a long time for ciders to start to come back. And we were very fortunate to discover this crab apple accidentally. It was growing as a decorative tree on my property in Samberton where our winery started. And you'll find that uh, the Dolgo crab apple almost exclusively as a decorative tree right now. There are very few orchards that actually grow that fruit for the purposes of food, wine, or cider. Uh, uh, the only reason we were able to find enough crab apples to make the wine that we make is they're used as a pollinator and a perimeter crop at a lot of orchards because first they drop a lot of fruit. So they keep the deer on the perimeters of the orchards and they also provide a lot of flowers. So they are great pollinators to pollinate the rest of the apples in the, in the orchard. So there are farms that still have them as perimeter crops. They don't harvest them, they let them drop. But we found a couple farms in, uh, in the Keene Walpole area, uh, Allison's Orchard being one of them that was, was willing to, to, to harvest them for us. And, uh, and then we also talked to a farm who was putting in a new orchard down in, uh, in Belmont, New Hampshire, to plant 75 trees for us. Uh, we told them if they, if they worked with us and planted the trees, we would, we'd buy every piece of fruit at, at top dollar prices that they can produce. And it's given us a nice steady stream of crab apples because that's, that's one of our most popular wines. And, uh, and for a while we were having a hard time making it because we just couldn't find the, the fruit. And the reason there's 5% blueberry in there is when we made the crab apple wine, we discovered when we filtered it before putting it in the bottle, Crab apple, the crab apple color, which is really a nice bright red coming off the skin of that of the apples, uh, gets stripped out in the filters. It doesn't fix color very well, uh, and blueberries fix color extremely well. So we learned early on that if we added a small amount of blueberries to the mix, we would get a nice color that uh, that would that would be fixed and not get dropped out in the in the filter process. And uh, it does offer some complexity to the flavor, not probably noticeable to most p 
people who would try it, but uh, but it certainly does offer something. You beat me to my next question. I was going to ask you how much you think that blueberry really influences the flavor overall. You really think it's crab apple forward, and that's really what you're tasting out of the wine. Absolutely, and it's quite fascinating. Um, if you were to if you were to drink the wine just like you are now, with nothing else to compare it to, you wouldn't notice the the blueberries. But if I shared with you a crab apple wine side by side with one that had 5% blueberries in it, uh, you would notice, you would be able to tell the difference. And one of the things that's been most amazing to me working with Ken over the years and learning about the, the, the really fine tuning of the different wines that we're making is the slightest variation can create really dramatic results. The difference between a quarter percent and an eighth percent sugar can be dramatic when you taste it side by side. Out in the world, you know, when you're not doing a side by side, you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily know that there was that much of a difference in sugar. But when you taste the wine, dialing in the right ingredients, the right percentages of the right ingredients is a real challenge. And it takes time because the slightest variation in the smallest fraction of a percent can really make the difference between a good wine and a great wine. And that's something that Ken is getting, getting exceptionally good at, is really understanding how these different flavors of the fruits that we're working with come together and in what, what amounts uh, are required to, to really make something become special. And with the season, you have, you know, the ciders are obviously very, very in and people love them. Um, but we did talk a bit about when, when we visited the crab apples being a great, making a great wine for the holidays and specific to Thanksgiving. So having it with your Thanksgiving meals and having, you know, it throughout the fall really. And you have it in three different versions, right? You have the cider, you have the sparkling, and then you also have the traditional wine. Um, can you tell us what they do pair best with and, and what, what is it that makes it such a great wine for the holidays? Uh, that's a great question. And yes, indeed, uh, crab apple wine should really be on everybody's Thanksgiving table. It goes exceptionally well with turkey and all of the fixings that come with, with a Thanksgiving dinner. And the simplest way to help you understand why crab apple fits that bill is the, the same reason many people put cranberry sauce on their on their plate. Cranberry sauce sort of acts like an intermezzo. It cleans your palate. So if you have rich buttery foods in your mouth and then you put a little cranberry sauce in there, the tartness and the grippiness of those cranberries cleans your mouth, makes you have a nice fresh taste in your mouth and opens you up for the next flavor that you're gonna put in your mouth. So crab apple has a, a, a nice tart dry finish, very cleansing type finish to your, to your taste buds. So it, it goes really well with the kinds of things that one would serve on a Thanksgiving dinner, just like a cranberry sauce might go well, or what often chefs call the intermezzo, the, uh, that, that serving of food that's meant really just to clean your palate between different bites of food. The other way in which crab apple goes exceptionally well with a lot of different types of food is, is because it is such a tart apple, it requires a little bit of sweetness on the front. So you have a sweet, sweeter, not sweet, but a sweeter fruit, fruity front, and then this tart dry finish. And that sweet fruity front helps it balance with a wide variety of flavors. And, uh, and one of the things it, it, uh, it helps with is spicy foods. 
So crabapple also is, is, a, is a wine I would suggest for having with things that are a little bit spicier like Thai food or Indian food. Um, you need sweetness and tartness to compete with the heavier spices that come on Thai or Indian food. And crabapple delivers both that sweetness and tartness to, uh, to compete with those foods so that, so that you get to enjoy the flavors of the wine and the food in your mouth at the same time rather than one out competing the other. That's really what food, that's what wine and food pairing is all about. If you pair your wine and your food together well, both your wine and your food are going to taste better as a result. If you don't pair them well, one of them is going to suffer. You're either going to, to miss out on the quality of food that you're trying, or you're going to lose the quality of that wine being overborne by some type of food that's just too heavy or too strong for it. Yep. They're definitely... They definitely go hand in hand. That's why we're a food and wine podcast too. So speaking of food, you also have a deli there at the winery. What's the inspiration behind the menu there? Or what do you offer for people? Um, what can they expect when they show up to the winery to have some food with their wine? Uh, well, we have a, it, it's a, a relatively small menu. We, we do uh, uh, flatbreads with a variety of flavors that we've chosen specifically because of how well they do go with with the wines that we're serving. We do uh, paninis and uh, wraps. Uh, hot, uh, we have a bacon jam uh, turkey wrap and a uh, bacon, I mean a bacon jam turkey panini and a, uh, a cranberry turkey wrap. And again, trying to use some of the ingredients that we use in our wine. And in some cases, actually using our wine in the production of some of the the foods that we're serving. We have some salads that we offer, uh, different seasonal salads. Uh, this time we have a blueberry salad that's made with a special blueberry dressing, made with the same blueberries we use to make our wine. We, uh, we have a, a cranberry dressing that we use on some salads during a time when we have cranberries. Whenever we're getting fresh fruit into the winery, we let our chef know that it's coming and she immediately starts thinking about ways in which to apply the, the fruit to our menu so that uh, so that you can enjoy the wine with the food that we're serving. Um, we have, uh, so we have salads, flatbreads, pizzas, sandwiches, wraps, uh, hummus, uh, hummus plates, and uh, uh, various specials that we offer at different times. We're really learning and growing the, the deli as, as, uh, as I speak. We're, we're still pretty, pretty new to the deli. I said three years. Our first year, we didn't even tell anybody we had it, so we could we could really learn and grow. And so it's really been only growing for the last couple of years as it is now. And, uh, and we expect it to grow more. We're gonna be right now uh, under normal conditions, non COVID conditions, we have in the summertime about 40 seats in the winery. Well, starting next year, uh, if, we, if we don't have COVID to deal with, we're gonna have 135 seats. So our deli is going to have a lot more demand and we're going to have to expand our menu accordingly. And so we're still growing it and developing it and, and trying to figure out what the best, best direction to go is. Of course, we have uh, cheese and cracker and cheese and charcuterie plates so that people can enjoy uh, cheese, and, cheese and crackers with their wine. Uh, that's a, really a staple. You, you, cheese almost goes with any wine or vice versa. So. Yeah, and I made the mistake of going when I was hungry and uh, it smelled incredible. I was so hungry and you were, you were running in and out. You guys are very hands-on, which is impressive. Um, everything looked really great. One of the things that we wanted to go back and touch on that another thing that our listeners might not be aware of 
is bricks. And what is bricks in the wines that you're making? Because that's something that I think, you know, we might know, but a lot of our listeners might not know. So bricks is a B-R-I-X is a measure that fruit producers use to measure the actual sugar content of fruit. So to give you an idea, uh, the, the average apple has about 12 or 14 bricks of sugar. That's the sweetness of an average apple. The sweetness of a table grape that you'd have, that you'd buy at the local supermarket is typically around 17 to 19 or 20 bricks. The sweetness of a classic wine grape ranges anywhere from 24 to 30 bricks. So wine grapes are actually some of the sweetest fruit on the planet. So that gives you a little bit of understanding of how we, how we measure in the industry, how we measure that sugar content in our fruit. I should also mention uh, relative to the deli, it's our focus as much as possible to really be farm to table. Um, we work with all of the local farms in our area to try and source the ingredients that we use in, in all of our uh, different menu items. We change our menu items seasonally so that we can take advantage of those, the, the best fruits that are, or, or uh, best foods that are being produced in our area. We get, for our sandwiches, we have a local bread producer who, who crafts the bread in, in the town of Samberton uh, in, a, in a home kitchen. And it's some of the best bread I've ever had. Um, we work with uh, a number, we work with Picnic Rock Farm. They provide a lot of the vegetables and, and uh, they also have a bakery that they provide us with baked goods. We work with a number of Vermont cheese producers, uh, Brookford Farm cheese in Canterbury. There's all these local farms producing really local and really great ingredients in a small craft way, just like we're crafting our wines. It's just as important to us to include those in our deli menu for the same reason that we think it's important for you to drink local wine. Um, support your local farmers, support your local craft food producers, and you'll eat better, you'll eat healthier, you'll eat, you'll eat better quality food. And uh, so that's been a mission of ours in everything we do is to try and really keep it local. And same reason we, we, uh, we only carry New Hampshire made small craft beer in our deli. Um, no offense to all you Budweiser drinkers out there, but you can get Budweiser at every bar on every corner. And uh, so we don't carry Budweiser. We carry Twin Barns uh, beer. We carry Shackets over in Bristol. We carry uh, all the small local brewers that are just like us trying to figure out how to create the best craft beverages that they can make in, in the area. Yeah, we love that. And of course, uh, we've tried quite a few and I know Nick, you specifically have. He's always looking for somewhere new to pick up some craft beer. <laughs> we're we're in, a, in a great time right now. In fact, if you didn't know, a couple of years ago, we surpassed for the first time in the US the number of breweries that actually existed in America prior to prohibition. And that number is somewhere in the thousands, at four or 5,000 breweries in the US. So it has taken us a long time, but we've gotten there. And in New Hampshire alone, 10 years ago, I think you could have probably counted on both hands how many breweries existed in New Hampshire. Well, there now are over 90 breweries, uh, commercial breweries in the state of New Hampshire. So it's really exciting. We live in great times. You can get some really wonderful products and just drive down the street to get it fresh right out of the brewer's hands. 
and I think there's something like a couple hundred here in Maine too. So Maine's <laughs> we right have a with bunch you on that one. <laughs> you live in Beer Mecca. You're in Portland, right? I know. I know. <laughs> I I think the main stat that I heard when I first moved here is like within like Portland area, there's something over a hundred breweries in the area. It's crazy, but it's good. I've always been a craft beer drinker. So when we came up here for uh, my girlfriend to go to school up here, I got a job. It felt like home right away. Uh, I'm I'm a, I'm a little bit jealous. Um, I, I we do make wine, but I don't uh, discriminate against any, against any alcohols and uh, and very much enjoy a nice beer once in a while. So I look forward to always look forward to going to Portland and and ticking off the number of breweries that I get to visit when I get there. Seems like I can't keep up though. Every time I get there, there's a, there's a few more that's been added since the last time I visited. Always always popping up. So speaking of uh, coming here to Portland. Where can people outside of the winery find your wines? Are you guys distributed around to the neighboring states or just throughout New Hampshire, around the country? Where can we find your wine? It's a great question. You can find my our wine pretty widely throughout New Hampshire. Uh, we're a relatively small winery. We produce less than 5,000 cases of wine a year. Um, I, I want to point out, though, that 95% of the wineries in the world produce less than 5,000 cases of winery of, uh, of wine per year. So we're actually right there in the sweet spot of uh, small craft wineries. But at that scale, there's really no need for us to sell outside the state on a wholesale basis. So we don't do any wholesale distribution to other surrounding states, at least not at the moment. Um, that's a volume game because you, uh, when you do, when you sell wholesale, you you give up half the price of your product as soon as it crosses the border into the next state. So, so we don't have a need for that. But uh, pleased to say that you can order our wine directly from us in 38 states around the country. Uh, you simply go to our website and go to the section where you can buy online. And I'm pleased to say Maine is one of those 38 states. So if you'd like to purchase any of our wine, you can purchase it in Maine. Um, and uh, the list of those states is all listed on, uh, on our website. Sadly, uh, Connecticut and Rhode Island are not on that list. Those two states uh, are still making it fairly difficult for uh, small craft producers to get into those states. Some, every single state has different sets of licensing rules and uh, some make it harder than others. And so we've, we've gotten into 38. We hope someday to be in all the states, but uh, right now we're at 38. So widely across New Hampshire and then direct to consumer in 38 states around the country. And where can all of our listeners find you online and on social media? Uh, we're pretty, pretty out there. You can visit us on our website at hermitwoods.com. We also have a very active Facebook page. You could just Google uh, or type in Hermit Woods in Facebook and you will, or Hermit Woods Winery in Delhi, and you will find us. And uh, we also are active on Instagram. We do dabble a little in Twitter and in Pinterest. Uh, we have a YouTube channel and we do our best to try and stay at least somewhat active in all of those channels. And we really encourage all of our visitors to come and, and like us, follow us, friend us. Um, there isn't a comment or a, a review or a, a message that goes without answering at Hermit Woods. If you come in and you check in, you're going to hear from us. We're going to respond. We're going to say hello. We're going to uh, we're going to try and reach out because it's a community, and uh, we really want to want to build that community. Uh, it's a, it's a small, you know, the the craft industry is a small part of the 
of the uh, of the world. You know, we're we're still a niche, a niche thing. So we got to stick together. So. Absolutely. And I will say before we close out that I recently indulged in the strawberry rhubarb wine that we brought home and it was incredible. So for anybody who has a little bit of a sweet tooth, that was one of my favorites that we tried there. Excellent. Yeah, that that is a uh, that's a big favorite for a lot of our our customers. Actually, we, we sell out of it every year as a result. <laughs> so we can't we can't make enough of it because again, our our priority is also on uh, making sure we use as much as possible organic ingredients and and uh, we only will make wine from organic strawberries. So it's hard to get enough of them to make to make the amount we want to make. Great. And we're all about supporting local and supporting craft. That's why we started this podcast. We just love enjoying the products ourselves, first of all, and we love sharing it with other people. So we're glad you're here doing this. I'm glad I have such a great winery so close to Meredith, you know, in Meredith where we're always at. And I'm looking forward to stock up on some more of this crab apple wine so I can drink it before Thanksgiving and then stock up on more of it for Thanksgiving. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. We had a great time. Awesome. Thank you, guys. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. 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 Be sure to follow us on social at Uncorked Corner and on the blog at uncorkedcorner.com for a taste of more food and beverage content. And if you enjoyed the show, don't forget to leave a comment, subscribe, rate, and review on whatever podcast platform you prefer. Thanks for listening. Thanks.